Welcome back to Bible Time, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you that God would count you worthy of this calling. This is going to be a good one. That God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Now, the word of God is always good, but this one is going to be kind of special. Kind of is special to me just because I see the way that God takes this verse and just sinks all of our preconceived ideas with one shot, a torpedo below the waterline, while at the same time encouraging us and lifting us up. God is so good. Let's pray and let's get into this text. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would use this text, that you would use this teaching, Father, and this preaching, Father. I pray that you would give me unction and utterance, that you would pour out your Spirit upon me, Lord, that you would use this and that you would pour out your Spirit on all those that hear it. Convince men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment as only you can do and change hearts and minds in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake, amen. So this verse in verse 11 is the tie-in to verse 12. Look at it again. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. It's an amazing statement, and it would be a standalone, um, it would be worthy of a standalone statement, but here it comes sandwiched between verse 10 and verse 12. Verse 10, when he shall come, that is Jesus Christ coming, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you, he says, that our God would count you worthy of this calling. What calling? The calling to come to um, glorify Christ, to admire Christ, this calling to escape the trouble, the tribulation, the vengeance, the righteous indignation and wrath of Almighty God against the lost, the calling to salvation the calling to walk worthy, the calling to be a godly and holy individual and to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is this bridge between the idea in verse 10 that God is giving us and the and the practical application that comes in verse 12, that the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. See, in verse 10, it was saying that Jesus Christ is coming to be glorified in his saints. In verse 12, he's saying that that they have prayed in verse 11 so that Christ will be glorified in you today. So this idea of Jesus is coming that's been being talked about all through the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians is now being brought down to practical application in verse 12 where God is saying, yes, Jesus Christ is coming. And when Jesus Christ comes, he's going to be glorified in his saints. But now what he's gearing up for is verse 12, which is going to bring this down to brass tacks of daily living and bring this down to today. Is Jesus Christ being glorified in your life today? And We'll save that more for tomorrow's message, Lord willing, or the next Bible time that we do. But this is this is bringing in and tying together this idea of the coming of Christ with the idea of today. You see, Christianity is not metaphysical. Christianity is not ephemeral. Christianity is not a bunch of fog and smoke and mirrors and lights and a big show that you only go and do on Sunday that has no effect on the rest of your life. True Christianity, true 
true religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, James says, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. What is he talking about? He's talking about daily application of holiness and of God's truth and righteousness and Christ-likeness. And that's what God is bringing this whole thing down to. Eschatology that stays in the end times um, doesn't have any use in, in, in discussion. There's no point in it. Whenever people just want to talk about eschatology because they just want to get bump chilies talking about the beast and, and they want to talk about microchips, they want to talk about vaccines, they want to talk about all these things that are coming in the future and how these events are going to come together and, and collude to bring forth the Antichrist and bring forth end times, but they never have any practical application from it are really just a bunch of thrill seekers. That's really all it is. Whenever people are just getting into the book of Revelation because they want to hear neat things and they want to they want to get the opinion of some preacher on what the what the scorpions really are, the scorpion tails, what are those things? And they want to get the, the somebody's opinion on the hair like women, on those locusts, and they want to get somebody's opinion on on the beast's claws and or on the helmet on the heads and this head and that head and they want to get all these ideas about what things mean, but they never want to come back to real life. They never want to come back to practical application. They're just thrill seekers. Now that is real life. Revelation is going to be real life, but God did not give us the book of Revelation so that we can sit around and ooh and ah and get bump chilies. It's not goosebumps. It's not, there's that guy out there. I can't even remember his name. I don't even want to. Some Christian thriller guy wrote all these books. Christians read these books and they're, and everybody's into these thrillers. Thriller this, thriller that. And everybody wants thrillers from God. But God, a lot of, there's even a gospel group out there I heard of one time that their name is, that has to do with thrillers. Good grief. Anyway, leave them alone and move on. So here in 1 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, he's bringing this thing all, he's boiling down this eschatology, these ideas of eschatology of the end times, and he's bringing them down back, back around to practical life. And he's going to show us some things here. The apostle Paul is by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. He's going to show us some things about this eschatology that will make this practical and real to us today. So first of all, what we want to see here is that he's praying always for them. Now, the the general idea, if I could just sum it up, and, and you, you can just shut the thing off and be done and get the whole idea just from one sentence. I'll just spoil the whole message right here. We should live in a state befitting the coming of the Lord today. If we're going to be glad when Jesus comes back, we should live like we would be glad if he came back today. And that's really the the summary of what is being said here. Does that make sense today? If we're going to be happy when Jesus comes back, we should live like we would be happy if he came back today. What does that mean practically? Well, let's look at that. So here he says, wherefore also we pray always for you. So here is this picture, Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus praying always, praying incessantly, praying without ceasing for this church at Thessalonica. Why would they pray always for this church? Well, first of all, they would pray for this church because they know the church desperately needs it. Now, that's, that might just have gone right over your heads, because some of you, that's a given. And so you say, well, of course they desperately need it. But others of you, that went right over your heads, because you can't comprehend how they would really need it, because 
the different ideas, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the different ideas in Christianity have, have the different extremes in Christianity come up with all kinds of weird doctrines that make this make no sense. They're praying always for this church. The church desperately needs prayer. But this church is a church that was in samples to all them in Macedonia and Achaia. This church is a church that was a flagship church for the whole region. This church is a church from which their faith sounded out throughout the whole region. This church is a church that is an example to others. And yet Paul says, we're praying always for you. And he wouldn't pray for them if they didn't need it. Think about that for a second. He's praying for them and they're always praying for them because they need it. Well, if they need it, if they really need prayed for, that means that they are not really as awesome as they might look like they are. So while they're in samples and while their their faith is being sounded throughout the whole region, everybody's looking up to this church and everybody says, wow, look at that great church. Paul's saying, we're praying always for you, which is a way of saying you are a needy church. You are a desperately needy church. You're not really all that great stuff. And we, Paul's encouraging them and he's telling them that, that you're great. But by the very fact that he's saying we're praying for you all the time, he's saying you're a needy church and you're going to fall if God doesn't do something for you. So we find that this amazing church, this elect church, this predestined church, this called church, this holy church, this ensample church, this faith-filled church, this church born in trouble is a church in great need and this church in great need has a need for people to pray for the church and the people in the church have a need to be prayed for so that they'll stand so they're prayed for because they desperately need it and why do they desperately need it because it could be said because it's not natural to be holy So here this church in Thessalonica is being prayed for. Wherefore also we pray always for you. Why are they prayed for? Because it's not natural to be holy. It's not natural to be Christ-like. It's not natural to walk befitting of the coming of Christ. It's not natural to live a life that would honor Christ if he were to come back today. If Christ came back right now, would you really honestly be able to be happy that he was back? I know some of you fluffy fairy tale people out there maybe that have a fairy tale Jesus that's just happy with all your sin and all your filth and all your wickedness and all your compromise and that's happy with all your lost loved ones who you think are saved. Um, some of you out there are going to oh yeah, sign me up. I'd be glad that Jesus came back today. And you don't have a clue because you don't even know the Jesus of the Bible. There's some of you out there possibly will listen to this uh, message as it goes out. And you're going to say, yeah, yeah, it'd be great if Jesus came back today. And you're sitting there with your sin. You're sitting there with your unholiness. You're sitting there surrounded by people who you are patting on the back, telling them Jesus loves you. I'm so glad that that God loves us and God has mercy on us. Will they live in open, unrepentant sin? And instead of warning them, you're just greasing their slide to hell. And you say that it's going to be okay. And like the man said the other day, I the man said, the man said, to me. I just really believe that if you believe in God and do your best, God will, God understands. And you guys out there, you think God just understands me. God just understands the way I am. And I've got news for you today. He does understand you. And he says, you are desperately wicked. Your heart is desperately wicked. All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You're on your way to the lake of fire. You're going to spend an eternity in a hell designed to torment the devil and his angels unless you repent and 
turn to Christ. Now, for the rest of you out there that might listen to this that are truly saved, truly saved, truly seeking God, truly following God, can you honestly say if Jesus Christ came back today, right now, you would be happy? You have absolutely no unconfessed sin. You have been walking in a manner that is upright and that is holy before God. You have kept yourself from the evil thing. God have mercy on me. I'm under conviction preaching this. Lord, have mercy on me and cleanse me and wash me and help me, Lord God, to be holy in Jesus name and for Christ's sake. Now, if you can say, I'm absolutely ready, that's great. You need to be. You should be. That's what this whole thing is is gearing us towards here in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 11 and verse 12. You should be. But the reality is that most of us are not most of the time. Most of us, if God were to come back, Jesus Christ, if he were to come back and blow that trumpet and the church would be caught up, you would have undealt with things sitting there on your account that he would have to deal with before we got any further with them whenever you got caught up. And what a shame that would be. It ought not be that way. It ought not be that way. We are to live in a state that is befitting the coming of the Lord. And he says here, wherefore also we pray always for you. He's praying for them because it is not natural to be ready. It is not natural to be absolutely pure. It is not natural to be holy. It is not natural to be like Jesus. Now, I know some of you out there, again, want to quote the positional holiness that God gives you when you're saved. And you say, well, I got saved, and and so Christ is in me, and I'm in Christ, and even though I'm living like hell, I'm really holy, and most of you guys that say that are lost anyway, but... Such a thing is not what I'm talking about today. God wants us to live in a way that is holy practically. God wants us to live in a way that is upright practically. God does not want us to live in a constant state of sin. It is the will of God for you to be holy if you are saved. Be ye holy, for I am holy, he said in the Old Testament. And then the apostle Peter brought it forward by inspiration of the Holy Ghost in the New Testament. And it is God's will for you to be holy. Holy means to be above sin, without sin above reproach in every thought, every word, every motive, every action. So the apostle Paul says, wherefore also we pray always for you. If we didn't get anything else from this, that's worth getting. You have a flagship church. You have a leadership church. You have a church that's being looked up to here, a church full of people that are following God, being persecuted for their faith and standing in the face of affliction with very little help from the outside, very little help outside of their little town. The apostle Paul got ran out after two Sabbath days in a Was it three Sabbath days, two weeks, three Sabbath days, two weeks that he was there and he got ran out. Timotheus went back to help him. They're standing for Christ. But the apostle Paul says, wherefore also we pray always for you. And therefore we should pray for one another and it should warn us and we should take heed that we are in desperate need. We desperately need prayer and we desperately need prayer because it is not natural to be holy. We can also see that we need prayer because we understand the seriousness of the vengeance and the wrath of Almighty God. 
You see, he starts there in verse 6, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So we see that the prayer for these people is partly due to the extreme seriousness of their condition, of the extreme seriousness of the condition of man. That man is sinful and that God's wrath and God's vengeance will be poured out on sinful man. And that therefore these people need prayed for that they would walk worthy of their calling, that they would make their calling and their election sure. And lest there should be, as he would say in the book of Hebrews, lest there should be any of you in amongst any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. So here he prays always for them. What if somebody in the church at Thessalonica, what if somebody going to church there, serving in the church, being persecuted for their faith, standing for Jesus Christ, what if one of those church people, even just one of them, is not truly right with God in his heart, has never been born again by the power of God, he's gone through the motions, he's mentally assented to the truth of the gospel, he's emotionally been touched with the feeling of joy, and a feeling of elation at the thought of Jesus Christ washing him in his blood and making him a new creature. But somehow, some way, he never accepted Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior. He never came to a place of repentance where, broken before God in his sin, he yielded and bowed the knee before a thrice holy God and called on the Lord Jesus Christ as a sinner to his Savior and was never born again. So the apostle Paul prays because of the desperate need that the church has for prayer. The apostle Paul prays because it's not natural to be holy and he's calling upon the church to be holy and the apostle Paul prays because of the desperate and serious situation the seriousness of the vengeance and wrath of almighty God that is unremitting and will be poured out on all those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ no matter how many years they serve the Lord in church, no matter how much tithe they gave, no matter how many offerings they gave, no matter what they did for God, no matter how many Sunday schools they taught, no matter who was there at their baptism, no matter when they were ordained, no matter how many messages they preached. So the apostle Paul prays, he says, wherefore also we pray always for you. Wherefore also we pray always for you. And he prays because of the tender affection that he has for this church in second Thessalonians. 2. It's actually 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. So because of the deep love and tender affection that Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus have for the church at Thessalonica, they pray. And they don't just pray part-time. They pray always. Wherefore also we pray always for you. This is 
is not some kind of coffee shop latte prayer. This is not some kind of little well-wishing. You know, the world prays for each other. Some big accident happens, a train wrecks, and a whole bunch of people will gather from all kinds of faiths and all kinds of backgrounds at the site of this uh, accident. And they'll weep with one another, and they'll wrap their arms around each other, and they'll share pictures of their loved ones that died in the train wreck, and they'll all get candles sometimes. You've seen the pictures. And they'll get flowers, and they'll put big piles of flowers where that train wrecked, and they'll put pictures of their loved ones in the stacks of flowers, and they'll weep together, and they'll light the candles, and they'll have moments of silence together. And in the name of solidarity and humanistic love for one another, it's not a it's a it's a good thing in a sense, but ultimately it has nothing to do with the prayers of the Bible. What God is talking about whenever the Apostle Paul says, "Praying always for you is holy." men of God lifting up holy hands in prayer before God. You see, if your prayer, if you regard iniquity in your heart, the Bible says the Lord will not hear you. So the apostle Paul is praying for the church at Thessalonica and he's not offering up prayers of solidarity. He's not counting rosary beads. He's not going through the motions. He's not spinning a prayer wheel. He's not having a moment of silence. He's not hurling some kind of uh, mental thought waves at the gates of an imaginary heaven where some kind of God somewhere may exist that may hear his idea that he's had in his mind that he's hurling at the gates of heaven. He's not throwing a penny over his shoulder into a wishing well and having good thoughts towards people. He's not sending out good vibes for people and positive waves to try and make their life better or to spiritually connect to them. What the apostle Paul doing is doing is he's entering into the holiest of all through the veil that is the rent body of Jesus. Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary in the name of Jesus Christ through the blood of the lamb. He's entering into that holy place, not made with hands in the heavens. And he's going before the very throne of God and the mercy seat in heaven upon which is sprinkled the blood of Jesus Christ. And he is prevailing and interceding for these people in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ and the holiness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Such prayer cannot be attained such prayer cannot be gained with a sinful life such prayer cannot be done with a wicked life such prayer cannot be done by a worldly life love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father but is of the world and the world passeth away and the lust thereof the apostle Paul is not entering into a place of prayer and it with his little cappuccino sitting there and all of his wickedness and all of his sin no he's living a holy life and he's calling these people to a holy life and he's praying for them to live a holy life because he knows they need the prayer he knows it's not natural to be holy he knows and understands the seriousness of the vengeance and wrath of almighty God and the judgment that's coming and he loves these people with a tender love a Christ-like affection that causes him to lay his life down for that church like Christ laid his life down for that church and be willing to suffer all things for that church. So he prays. Wherefore also we pray always for you. And this is his prayer that he prays that God would count you worthy of this calling, that God would count you worthy of this calling. This is a loaded statement. This is a powerful statement. Why pray for these people? 
Why pray for them at all? Why preach to these people? Why worry about them? Um, back in, in verse 4 of, of 1 Thessalonians. Go to 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4 and look at this here. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I told you this will put a torpedo below the waterline on almost every false doctrine out there just with this one verse. It's an amazing verse. So here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, he knows their election, which that, think about that one for a second. Because people say you're either saved. Some people will say you're either saved or you're not saved, and you won't know you're saved, they'll say until you get there because you're it's all elect and predestination and if you're the elect you make it and if you're not you don't but here the apostle paul knew those folks were elected how about that and if he can figure it out about other people then i would say it's pretty reasonable to say you can figure it about yourself especially since the bible says it's the will of god for you to know if you have eternal life so that being established that you can know if you have eternal life you can know if you're elect you can know if you're called and here the apostle knows that these people are called yet the apostle paul is praying that god would count them worthy of their calling what on earth what kind of a prayer is that if they're automatically saved because of sovereign God predestinated them and called them and elected them and they're in and they're and there's nothing that anybody can do about it because they're in then why in the name of God who wrote this book would God have the apostle Paul pray that they would be counted worthy of the calling to be counted worthy of the calling what does that mean that means to be put on the roster as worthy of that calling that means hired for the job do you hear me? He's saying, I'm praying that God would count you worthy of this calling. Now, universalists, universalists will teach that Christ died for all, which is the Bible. The Bible says that Christ died for all men. So then a universalist will go on and say something that's not in the Bible. And he'll say, because Christ died for all men, then all men are saved because Christ died for all men. Then that's a lie. So they took a truth in the Bible and they twisted it and they made a lie. There's another group out there and they say that Christ died for the elect. Therefore, all elect are saved. Isn't that interesting? So the universalists say you're saved regardless of your response to the gospel. Whether you accept Christ, whether you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you repent, whether you do anything like that, if you're saved, you're saved. And whatever you do, it's just an extension of a sovereign God's dealing with you. And you have really no part in the issue. Either God is going to move you through the motions of salvation until you become saved by act of a sovereign God, or you're not going to get saved at all. And so, therefore, regardless of your response to the gospel, you're saved. And they teach that. And that's the same thing the universalists teach. They just have a more exclusive club. Universalists just didn't like to exclude people. And the, oh, wait, many of them would be Calvinist groups. And they like to be more exclusive. So their group gets to go to heaven, but nobody else does. And it's all just by this heritage. By the way, that's in the Bible, these same groups. These same doctrines, um, same doctrine, different application here. Did you know that the scribe that we have two groups in the Bible, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they did the same thing that you see the Pharisees, um, they were all Arminists. 
They were working their way to, the, to heaven. They had all the rules, they had all the regulations, and they were doing it all, and they were going to get there by dint of their own righteousness, and they were working their way to heaven. So you have the Arminius over there trying to get to heaven, but then the Sadducees, they were a bunch of Calvinists, and they were all sure that they were elect because their daddy was Abraham. And so they're in because daddy was Abraham, and Jesus said to them, think not to say unto yourselves, I have Abraham for my father, for I say unto you, I am able to, of these rocks to raise up children unto Abraham, of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So you have these two groups, Arminius, Calvinists, and they battle back and forth. Which one's right? Well, we're going to, the reality is without getting too bogged down into it, that Jesus Christ taught through the apostle to make your calling and your election sure. To make your calling and your election sure. Let's say somebody... Now, all human analogies break down, so this has limited usefulness, and it will break down eventually. But let's say that somebody gave you a new car, and it was a super expensive car. Maybe it was a new Corvette or something like that. And you had been given the this free car, and, they, and the dealer sent you a notice that you got the free car. Well, if you're like me, I'd throw the paper right in the trash can. I wouldn't even look twice because I'm too used to their gimmicks. You know, a lot of people do that with the gospel, too. They're so used to gimmicks that whenever they hear about a free salvation they just throw it in the trash they don't even look at it twice and that's a shame and it and it's it's but it is what it is one of the devil's tricks is to get you so used to being lied to and gimmicks and rackets that you end up throwing out the truth without even giving it a close look because you don't even trust it You're, it's not worth your time but in any case you so let's say you've been truly given this new car and let's say that you really believe that you're given that new car and it's yours and you know it's yours and you shout, you shout, Hosanna, hallelujah, or whatever would be more appropriate to shout for getting a new car. And you have this new car and you're shouting and you're jumping and you're putting pictures up on Facebook and Instagram of your new car and the specifications of your new car and you become an expert on how to take care of the new car. You even go to the dealer and you pick up a manual so that you can study that new car and you begin to, and you understand understand that car. You know what kind of fuel it takes. You know what kind of oil it takes. You know all of the maintenance and the different times to change the timing chain, the time to rotate the tires. When is it time to change the oil? When is it time to check transmission fluid? And you know all the details on that car. You check into insurance and you get it all figured out and you even pay for insurance on the car and you have the insurance card and you have everything all lined out. But for some reason, you never title it. You never title it. You never put the key in it. You never turn it. You never drive it. It never becomes your car. Even though you know it's available to you, it's been given to you. You've even been called up. You've been elected by vote. Maybe they threw the numbers in the hat and pulled it out at the dealer. And don't ask me to explain how God elects people because I don't know. I know he does it, but I don't know how it all works. But let's say at the dealership, they threw their number in a hat and they pulled out your number with your name on it and they gave you a call and they told you you have a car, but you never go and make it yours. Eventually, the car is going to get repossessed and you're not going to own it practically ever. And this happens to a lot of people. A lot of people hear about the gospel. They hear about Jesus Christ. They learn about the specifications. They learn about the details. They learn about the stories. They learn about the Bible. They learn about heaven. They learn about hell. They learn doctrine. They get systematic theology. They go to Bible school. They do all these things. They might even get the insurance. 
They might even go up to the church house and go through the motions of whatever the church tells them to do. Pray a prayer, go to the altar, um, go through confirmation, get baptized, join the church, church membership. They, whatever it is that gets asked of them, they're going to do it. And they go through it, but they never actually go and get the new name on the title. The Bible says that all whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast in the lake of fire at the final judgment. And a lot of people are going to go to hell from Arminius camps, from Calvinist camps, from non-denominational groups, from denominational groups all over this land, all over this world, because they never titled their salvation. They never got down to business with God and truly repented of their sins and stayed with God until they got the new title back from heaven. They never got the true title. They never got the earnest of the inheritance. They never got the seal of the Holy Spirit of God. They never got the witness of the Holy Spirit within their heart crying, Abba, Father. They never got the reality of a true born again, new nature inside of them that cannot sin and that hates sin and that despises sin and that wants to be holy and grieves every time they sin. And instead, what they have is pictures of a car. They have a electronic possession of salvation, but they don't have any physical proof of a salvation. They All they've got is the Instagram and Facebook salvation with no reality to it. They've got 600 horsepower sports cars sitting at the dealership and they're putting pictures up on Facebook like they own it and they're rolling around in an old jalopy, rusted out old beater car everywhere they go limping along in sin, limping along in brokenness, limping along in the lies of the devil, pretending like they're saved touting all of the specifications and benefits of their 600 horsepower sports car while they roll around in their old beater car. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Thessalonica that he prays always for you that God would count you worthy of this calling, that God would count you worthy of this calling. Christ offers eternal life, a full and complete salvation. Here are men and women, the apostle says, are elect, yet he prays for them. Election and predestination are in the Bible, but the doctrines are so perverted and twisted in modern explanations that really all that's left is biblical labels being applied to man-made doctrines and sometimes even doctrines of devils that are designed to damn, either by lethargy, by putting you to sleep and taking away all your responsibility before God and making you think that you get a free ride to heaven because God painted a stripe on your backside or on your forehead and the in some kind of spiritual way and you're going to get there apart from any response to the gospel yourself or this these doctrines of devils damned through depression making the your salvation dependent on you making your salvation dependent on your performance and your works and that's going to prove whether you're elect or not by how well you work. Most of them don't even like the word election whenever they go there. Matthew 22 and verse 14. Let's look at a few more verses. You see, this stuff is too big for me. 
I'm walking in stuff. It's just too deep for me. You get into all of this election and predestination. I've never met a man, by the way, that it wasn't too big for. And any man that I've ever heard preach on it that thought he was big enough to handle these subjects butchered it horribly and obviously was out of balance. Every time. Every woman I've ever heard talk about it. Every man I've ever heard talk about these subjects that thinks they've got it all lined out and all nailed down is always horribly out of balance every single time. And that's the one thing that's easy to discern. If you'll walk humbly and read your Bible, you'll be able to see whenever a group gets out of balance, but you won't necessarily be able to tell them exactly how it works. So they usually think that you're stupid and that you don't know anything and don't know as much as them because they do have it lined out. In any case, Matthew 22 and verse 14 Jesus says these words, for many are called, but few are chosen. Isn't that interesting? You can be called of God and not be chosen. What on earth? What's the context of that? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bid into the wedding and they would not come. So here are the called who wouldn't come. The called that never did come, that are just banking on their call, that say they're called and therefore they're in, but they won't come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. So here we find the called that did not come being burned up. How about that? Verse 8, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, now we've got that crowd too, by the way, the both bad and good, just bring them all, come as you are to church. And so here they all come and the wedding was furnished, but the next part, that group leaves off too. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. He was not clothed in the fine linen, the righteousness of the saints. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. He was clothed in his own filthy rags, his own righteousness, his own goodness, his own religion, his own prayer he prayed, his own experiences, his own ideas, his own opinions that he feels he's entitled to about God. He's clothed in his own garments, not the wedding garments. And it says here that the king spoke to him and he saith unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. The apostle Paul says here that he's praying for always for this church, that they would walk worthy of their calling, that they would step up to what God has called them to, that they would live what God has called them to live.
Pharisees all working their way to heaven, Sadducees all trusting in their pedigree, children of Abraham, the ones that repented and put their faith in Christ alone were saved. The rest were damned. And so it continues today with all manners of religion, those that think that they're grandfathered in by their heritage, unless you repent, ye shall likewise perish. And those that think they're going to work their way to heaven and earn a place in the ranks of heaven, unless you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So many today name the name of Christ. So few follow Jesus. Go to Luke chapter 6. So few follow Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now some people take this passage and they say that we got to be so careful here. Lord help me to rightly divide the word of truth and to preach this right and straight. Some people take the sayings of Christ and they say that you get saved by doing everything Christ said to do, but they leave off repentance and faith towards God. Did you know that the first thing that Jesus preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? A lot of people try to do the things Jesus said, excluding the first one. They exclude the repentance, the true brokenness before God for sin. They exclude the faith toward God. They don't come to God like the publican smiting upon his breast. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. They come in all their own righteousness like the rich young ruler. He came and he said, Lord, all these have I kept from my youth up. Do you know, Jesus did not say he had not kept them. But he did say, this do and thou shalt live. Go, sell all that thou hast, come and follow me. And you'll have eternal life. And that rich man went away sorrowful, for he had much possessions. He had never come to a place of brokenness. He never came to God in emptiness. And repentance is repentance is something that's so misconstrued because repentance doesn't mean saying I'm sorry for that one thing I did. Repentance in the biblical sense of what Jesus was preaching and John the Baptist was preaching means a total brokenness before God for my state as a sinner and my continued sin against God. You can tell God, I'm sorry I lied. I'm sorry I cheated. I'm sorry I stole. And cherish your adultery. And cherish your fornication. And cherish your wicked heart of unbelief. And never be saved because you've never come to a place of true brokenness of being a sinner before God. And you're cherry picking your sins and you pick this sin and that sin and you're sorry for those sins. But you've never come to God in brokenness over your condition as a sinner before God and your inability to please God. And so then you come to God with what you call repentance and what God calls rebellion. And you stand before God with your big alligator tears running down your cheeks for that time that you lied and that time that you stole. And yet you stand before God in total abject rebellion. Did you know that nobody can cry better than a rebel? 
You give you you want to find a, somebody that knows how to cry. Find yourself a thirteen year old rebel girl that hates her parents and hates the rules in the house, but she's not old enough to make it in the world yet. And she still needs her bedroom and she still needs to be fed and she still needs her bills paid for her. And you'll find a girl that can cry like nobody else you'll ever meet because she can cry just enough to get daddy to lighten up so that she can go another month, another year in her rebellion without ever really getting right with her parents all the while knowing that right around the corner when she gets to a certain point, she's going to blow out and she's planning on it and waiting on it. Now, of course, sometimes that's that sinful heart deceiving itself and that's all kept hidden. And, you know, it's, it's ironic. Most people can deceive themselves so well that they convince themselves that they're not really that way, even though they really are that way. And they really know they're that way, but then they really don't know they're that way because they refuse to admit it. And that's what we're talking about, that refusal to admit your true condition, refusal to admit your rebellion before God, refusal to admit your abject sinfulness. Your depravity in the face of God, your wickedness in the face of God, and this partial repentance that admits this is wrong and admits that is wrong, but never comes to God in brokenness over sin. So many name the name of Christ, so few follow. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Well, I do what Jesus says, and you do one thing Jesus says. You do ten things Jesus says, but you leave off the main things Jesus says. You leave off the repentance and the faith towards God. You leave off the love of God and the love of brethren. The greatest commandments, the most broken commandments in the whole world. You know, I meet Sabbath keepers. And they'll put tassels on their coats and they'll and on their clothes and they'll put the Ten Commandments out by the road and, and they'll do all these external things and they'll go to unbelievable lengths to keep some commandments in the Bible all the while patently breaking commandment after commandment after commandment after commandment in unrepentance and self-righteous pride, thinking that they're pleasing God because of the five or six commandments that they keep. Or even, how about the 500? James says, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you are guilty of all. So the Apostle Paul prays. He prays for these people and he prays that they, that he prays always for them, that God would count them worthy of this calling. Have you been counted worthy of this calling? Has God put your name down in the book of life? Has God sealed your name in eternity? Or is it something you're working to attain? Or is it something you're sitting on your laurels thinking is yours just because you've gone through some motions, but you've never come to a place of true repentance, brokenness before God? The next thing that he prays for is that they would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. This is another torpedo in the boat of modern religion right here. This is basically that God would do what pleases him and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. This does not say that the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm praying for you, church of Thessalonica, that that God would do your good pleasure, that God would make you eminently happy. I wish above all things that thou was to be in health and peace. That's a butchery of a verse in John that's a good verse and has a right application, but is twisted and ripped out of context and rested to the destruction of many people in our day and age. The Bible here says that Paul says he's praying that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. That means whether it's good or bad in your eyes, it's good in God's eyes, and therefore Paul's praying for it. 
Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Job said, yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. What if God's goodness for you is for you to lose your legs? What if God's good pleasure for you is for you to lose an arm? What if God's good pleasure for you is for you to be an orphan? What if God's good pleasure for you is a life of suffering? What if God's good pleasure for you is for you to stand in a coliseum and be fed to lions? What then? All things work together for good to them that love God. But whose good does it work together for? God's good. And God's good doesn't always line up with my good. God's ways are not my ways. God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And we don't always know God's thoughts. The context here of this good pleasure of God is that we would walk worthy. So here he's saying that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. What does that mean? For God to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the walking worthy means the Apostle Paul is praying that God would bring any pressure necessary into the lives of the church at Thessalonica to make them conform to the image of Christ. That's what he's talking about. The walking worthy, the good pleasure of God's will, the good pleasure of God's great goodness. Do you know the Bible says the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Do you hear me today? The goodness of God leads men to repentance, the Bible teaches. And here God is praying, the Apostle Paul is praying by inspiration of the Holy Ghost, the prayer of Jesus Christ himself here, the who daily maketh intercession for you, that God in his goodness would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in, in your life, meaning that God will lead you to repentance. Repentance unto salvation and repentance unto good works. Repentance unto a holy life. Repentance unto a life that is worthy of the calling and a life that is ready for Jesus Christ's return. <coughs> As we talked about when we started this message, it behooves us if we will be glad and rejoice at the coming of Christ to live in a state that is ready and prepared for his coming. And this is the good pleasure and this is the goodness of God to lead you to repentance. The message to the church at Laodicea was be zealous therefore and repent. Be zealous therefore and repent. What do you do with all the wickedness, all the sin that you see every day multiplying on every side? You repent, you repent, you repent, you repent, you repent, and you repent again. You see wickedness, you repent. You say, why should I repent when I see somebody else do wickedness? Why don't you ask Daniel that? Go read Daniel chapter 9. Why don't you ask Ezra that? Go read Ezra chapter 9. Why don't you ask Nehemiah about that? Go read Nehemiah chapter 9. When you see other people do wickedness, you are defiled by it. And you have two choices. You can either rise up like a Pharisee over them and judge them and sit over them in some kind of self-righteousness that will end in sin, or you can excuse them and lower yourself to their level and try and excuse them before God and try and lower God to their level or your other option is to repent repent for them and repent for the wickedness in your own heart that would be just like that if God let you go if God let you have your way if God let your wicked heart do what it wanted to do you would be worse than what you're looking at 
And so, so instead of frowning at them, instead of sneering at them, instead of putting your arm around them in an act of humanistic solidarity and being a partaker of their sins, you repent. You repent of their sin. You repent of your sin. You repent of your potential to sin. And you beg God for mercy. And this is the goodness of his good pleasure. And this is what God is leading you to. And this is how you will be ready when he comes. The good pleasure of God. The goodness of God leads men to repentance. And this brings us to the final part of this verse as we wrap up. And the work of faith with power. Isn't this an amazing verse? Can you believe that? Can you believe what it, what it actually says here? That's, that's amazing that God would do that in the word of God. Let's turn over there real, real quick and read it right out of the text. In Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. These things, when you understand them in their context, it's amazing how they flow together. So from the worthy of this calling, which is what? Brokenness and repentance before God that then finds itself clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The only way to be worthy of this calling, both for salvation and for daily sanctification of the believer who's been saved with everlasting life that Jesus Christ promised. So the walking worthy of this calling and then the fulfilling of all the good pleasure of his goodness, which is to lead you to repentance, to keep you holy, to keep you pure, to bring pressure into your life, to conform you into the image of his son. And that these things, this brokenness and this confirmation to Christ and this fellowship of his sufferings and this being made conformable unto his death, then brings about this work of faith with power. Go over to James. Go to the book of James. I don't know how much we will do here. We're just going to blitz through this probably. James chapter 2 verse 17. Even so faith if it hath not works is dead being alone. Yea, man may say thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know O vain man that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers, and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead dead also. The brokenness of of repentance, the brokenness and contrition, the brokenness that God brings you to, the confirmation to Christ that God brings you to, works in faith. Faith that works. Faith that doesn't work is dead. People say, I have faith in God, and they take another puff on their joint, and they say, I have faith in God, and they slam their liquor bottle. They say, I have faith in God, and they go on and watch their filth out of Hollywood, and they say, I have faith in God, and the Bible says your faith is dead. Faith that doesn't spring from a broken and a contrite heart that doesn't result in works of righteousness and holiness is not biblical faith. 
So this work of faith, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which were are seen were not made of the things which do appear. Faith, by the way, means trusting the veracity of the one speaking, taking God at his word. Verse 6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So this faith that pleases God, this faith that comes to God is a faith based on the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Bible says in more than one place the just shall live by faith. That is to live by the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Anybody's idea of faith that is divorced from the reality of the word of God, the perfect preserved word of God is a false faith and a fake faith. The brokenness of the walking that he might count you worthy, that brokenness of repentance that results in that faith that brings you to salvation, that brokenness of repentance that results in a faith that works in you, sanctification. This is that work of faith that he's talking about here in 2 Thessalonians and that we see in James chapter 2 in Hebrews verse 11 and he says that this work of faith with power, go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and go ahead and read that for yourself. We're just probably going to stop here. We'll just read a couple verses because we don't have time for all of it here. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And here was the power. There's Peter standing up in the midst of them. And in Acts chapter 3, we find Peter and John going up to pray. And we find then again in chapter 4, Peter filled with the Holy Ghost and speaking to these rulers of the people. And it says that whenever they took looked at them and took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus, it says in verse 13. And this is that work of faith with power. Work of faith with power. A holy trinity right there. A holy trinity of pure and clear and real evidence that what you have is true and that you are worthy of the calling that God has called you with to salvation. Isn't that amazing? Work of faith with power. You divorce any one of those from the other and you have something that is not divine any longer. You have something that's made up. You can have so-called faith with no works, and you can have so-called power with no works of righteousness, no obedience to God. Happens all the time. It's fake. You can have works and so-called faith with no power, denying the power thereof, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The Bible says of such, turn away all the right doctrine, all the right works, all the right clothing, and no power of God. Of such turn away. You can have works and you can have power, but have divorced it from the Bible and no longer be held to the word of God and be unbiblical and unscriptural in what you're doing and you're fake and you're phony and you're a fraud. God calls you here to the work of faith with power. And this is the cry of the heart of the Apostle Paul as he prays for this little fledgling church. 
Wherefore also we pray always for you that God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Father, in Jesus' name, please use this message. Bind Satan, Lord, over those that would hear it and do not let him steal it from their hearts. Lord, oh, that I would walk worthy, Lord, of your calling. We love you today in Jesus' name. Help us to believe your Bible regardless of what our Bible teachers have taught us, regardless of what systematic theologies we've read, regardless of what our denominations teach or preach. Father, help us, Lord, to just believe your book and to obey you and follow you. In Jesus' name and for Christ's sake, amen.